The film review podcast for movies most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. Or whether it should be thrown back into oblivion forever. We review the films others tend to forgive. Ho, 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 happy holidays and welcome to episode 141 of Movie Oubliette, the hemisphere-hopping podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, experiencing jet lag for the first time in Cambridge, UK. Ah, yes, and me, Dan, ready to put up the Christmas tree in a blistering summer down here in Melbourne, Australia. (laughs) We focus on forgotten fantasy, sci-fi and horror films because we love friendly neighbourhood sociopaths, Doc Brown defying time for true love and bloodstains in the crisp Christmas snow. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) So festive. Yes, yes. Welcome back, Conrad, from your adventures abroad. Yeah. Uh, I know. I've been in a different country, Dan. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, We were a bit secretive about the whole thing because I think you wanted to surprise some viewers on, on, on YouTube. But where did you go, Conrad? I went to America. I went and stayed with Michael French and Melinda Mock of uh, Retro Blasting and Dreamland. Ah, yes. In Atlanta, Georgia. My first time in the US, my first ever long haul flight. And yes, we did keep it secret so that when we did the next episode of Dreamland, there I was in the flesh yes. in front of the amazing toy display in Michael's studio. Yeah. So. Was it surreal? <gasps> Being there? Oh, yeah. It was just completely surreal. I couldn't quite believe I was there. It was very odd. <laughs> yeah, and you would have seen the opposite side of uh, of that room as well. Yeah, it's completely different to how I imagined it. <laughs> yeah. Seeing the other side of people's rooms where they live stream from is just freaky. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and they, I always find the rooms are bigger than you expect. Yes. Yeah, that... <laughs> That whole area that Michael and Melinda have, the basement in their beautiful home, is enormous. It's like the whole floor plan of the house, but a floor down. Wow. (laughs) Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, any other highlights from uh, America? Yeah, so I went to the Centre for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta. So there was a massive Jim Henson display. So I saw all of the Dark Crystal and Labyrinth Ooh. and Sesame Street and Muppet characters. And uh, yeah. there was a Mystery Science Theatre display as Aww. well with the robots from that. And uh, Chucky Ooh. was there. Okay. So, fun for horror fans. He's bigger than you think he is. Oh, is he? Yeah, it's an actual production puppet on display. It was really cool. Wow. And we saw Home Alone with a live orchestra. Oh, cool. We saw Burn in the cinema. We saw a production of The Tempest in the Shakespeare Tavern. We did, <laughs> honestly... Michael and Melinda are lovely human beings and they were great hosts and had all these amazing things planned for me. So it was a blast. Yeah, yeah. I believe it was a bit of a culture shock for you as well. How how do you find <laughs> Americans? 
<laughs> well, Atlanta is, uh, you know, great. It's one of the biggest cities in the South, and it's very, you know, full of great culture and museums mm. and everything, which mm -hmm. we went to. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you travel outside of the center and you start seeing some really <laughs> things that are very interesting for a very sheltered English guy. So, you know, like billboards that say things like, Jesus healed my wife. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, you're in that, that part of America. Yeah, it's not the sort of advertising claim you see very often in the UK. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, of course. <laughs> no. But how about you adjusting to uh, Christmas in the uh, heat? Is it summertime there now? Uh, well, it's going to be summer. Everyone keeps saying it's going to be a hot summer. It hasn't arrived yet. I know it will arrive and I'm going to be complaining about it. So that's why I said blistering summer because <laughs> it is going to be a blistering summer, apparently. Uh, it's oh, going to okay. be very dry, very, very hot. But I, I guess you'll be in the festive spirit now. I am, yes. Yeah, nearly finished uh, work for the year and, uh, yeah, just getting ready for lots of fun family time. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess we should look into our mailbag for today, Conrad. Yes. Well, when we posted that Highway to Hell poster art collection... Uh, well, oh, yes. I mean, I say we, I wasn't involved at all. It was all you and Isaac <laughs> doing the heavy lifting and you did a fantastic job. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yes. So Isaac posted the poster collection and said that uh, it was created by the Dean of Science Fiction Artists, Frank Kelly Frias. I'm not sure how you pronounce the surname. Okay. Yeah. He also painted the cover of Queen's album, News of the World. And our listener Stephen said... That Queen album art scared the bejesus out of me as a child. Uh, My brother used to play the LP to keep me out of his room. Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what is the artwork for that album? It's like this big looming, either a stone statue or a robot sort of looming over you and reaching down. It's oh, very peculiar. Okay. <laughs> Any album art scare you as a child? Then? Uh, not that I remember, no. More more movie posters, <laughs> I think. Yeah. And uh, a little bit earlier than that, we posted the colouring and activity books for The Sword and the Sorcerer. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Which Isaac said might be some of the strangest movie merch we've found in the Oubliette. <laughs> and Eddie Coulter said, I remember having the colouring and activity book based on Lynch's Dune. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So just I guess they were sand. trying to. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So I guess they were trying to market it as like a Star Wars movie for kids or something. I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've almost finished uh, the second book, uh, Dune Messiah. Yeah. I have to say, not my favorite book. It feels like a chapter within a much larger story. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know whether you've read it, but it's like, it's, it's have, yeah. you know, it's in the world, which is great, but it, it just feels very, I don't know, not much happens. <laughs> no, the third one is better, I think. Okay, right. But then apparently it falls off a cliff on the fourth or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of books because it got continued mm. on by his son and another author. I think there are like yeah. 16 books. Like, I wonder if they mm. will do more movies after the second part of the Dune movie that's coming out next year. Well, I I know uh, Denis Villeneuve has got ideas for oh. a sequel, at least. Yeah. So, 
We shall see. I don't okay. know. I hope so. I yeah. love that world. I think it's great. Yeah, it is a good world. Mm. Those are all of the comments that you've sent us. Please do let us know what you think about the movies we've covered. We always love hearing from you. Yes, yes, yes. And we also enjoy emails uh, at our email address, movie.oubliet at gmail.com if you want to send anything our way. Yes. So I guess, Conrad, it's time to reveal the Christmas movie that we have <laughs> to discuss today. Ooh, exciting. Okay, I'll just amble on over here. I seem to be in some sort of medical room. Is it, is it a morgue? Yeah, there's a, like a stainless steel table, a, a body bag, and there's Ooh. this machine that's sort of pumping rhythmically. Oh, okay. Yeah, it is very rhythmic. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a metronome. Well, let's see what's in this bag. Oh, yeah, here's the movie. Uh, yeah. Don't mind the dead body. <laughs> Come <No>. back. <laughs> okay. Well, he's dead for sure. Oh, well, that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, a little bit creepy. All right, so mm. what do you have for us today? Well, today I have for us the 2016 supernatural psychological horror film, I Am Not a Serial Killer. Okay. Directed by Billy O'Brien. Written by Christopher Hyde and Billy O'Brien, based on the novel I Am Not a Serial Killer by Dan Wells, mm -hmm. and starring Max Records, Laura Fraser, Christopher Lloyd, and Christina Baldwin. Oh, I haven't seen this movie. Uh, what happens in it? Well, there are many foreboding signs for the future of our hero, teenager John Wayne Cleaver. He lives above the family's mortuary business and spends his spare time helping his mum and aunt prepare bodies for burial. He shares his name with the notorious murderer John Wayne Gacy. He's literally the son of Sam, his absent father. He's been diagnosed as a sociopath and has to follow a strict moral code to prevent himself from acting on his homicidal impulses. And he's obsessed with serial killers. So it's good news for John when a maniac starts to prey upon the residents of his sleepy, snowy Midwestern town, mutilating the bodies and stealing parts. John can't stop himself from investigating the murders, but what begins as a dark fascination turns into a deadly game of cat and mouse between Ooh. the teen and the seemingly supernatural stalker who hides in plain sight. Can John unmask the monster? Can he stop it before it comes for his family or his elderly neighbours? And can he hold on to his principles and keep his own internal monster at bay? Find Ooh. out after the break. <laughs> yes, and we'll be joined by a guest. We will. Our special guest today is an award-winning science fiction, fantasy and horror writer, D&D &D Dungeon Master for Hire, the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast Writing Excuses, and proud owner of 500 
board games. We are very excited to welcome Dan Wells. Hello, sir. Hey. Hello. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thanks so much for joining us. This is our Christmas episode, so Ooh. I thought I'd kick off by asking you if you're looking forward to Christmas and what the uh, Christmas traditions are in the Wells house. Oh, man. I am looking forward to Christmas. It is always a bit of a hassle because Christmas is at my house. My extended family tends to come to our house. Ah. And so there's a lot of cleaning that has to be done before and after and a lot of cooking and <laughs> all of these other things. Uh, in terms of traditions, we have a series of movies that we watch ah. every Christmas season. And that usually kicks off right after Thanksgiving with the Christmas episode of Mr. Bean. Oh. <laughs> so I imagine that's going to happen probably Sunday or Monday night ah. as we begin the festivities and put up the tree. Oh, that sounds Ooh, great. Very nice. Do you have any uh, board game marathons that you do? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so the total that you read of 500 probably needs to go up a little because uh, I just, <laughs> wow <laughs> I'm a Kickstarter addict for board games ah. and I just got my huge deluxe Marvel Zombies Ooh. which came in like nine different boxes and has a zillion miniatures and so my three sons and I played that a lot over Thanksgiving <laughs> and I imagine that that will happen at Christmas as well that sounds great so that's the Marvel Universe, but zombies. Yes. It? Right. <laughs> and it's not that you're superheroes fighting zombies. You are dead superheroes trying to kill, like, alive, <laughs> like cops. <and> stuff. <laughs> cool. It sounds like the perfect metaphor for the state of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> <laughs> Me being a bit cynical. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> So do you have any favorite uh, horror movies that you watch during the holiday season? Oh, man. Every New Year's, I try to convince my children to watch Train to Busan with me. Oh, great ah. film. I don't know how that became a New Year's movie for us, but <laughs> it did. Well, I was just wondering because the film that we are focusing on for our Christmas special this year is obviously I Am Not a Serial Killer based mm. on your novel. And one of the reasons why we chose it was because it's set between Halloween and the holiday season. Yeah. Mm. And I was wondering why you chose that particular <laughs> period. I mean, it, it has a very specific tone to it, which is nice, especially with the Midwestern small town setting. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what were your sources of inspiration there? Well, there's two reasons, and one of them is cheating. <laughs> it was a very easy way to measure the passage of time. Ah. I didn't want a book that took place in a weekend. I wanted it to be an ongoing thing, and we could see relationships develop over time and watch people come together or fall apart. And so uh, just a nice, easy metric for how much time has passed? Well, it's Thanksgiving now. Uh, that made it a little easier. Uh, maybe not for countries that don't celebrate Thanksgiving. But yeah. <laughs> the other reason is that as much as it's a horror novel and it's about a monster that steals body parts and things, more than that, at least for me, it's a story about human relationships. And, you know, the uh, one of the core defining traits of sociopathy is that you cannot really connect emotionally with other people. And so setting the story in a family and watching them go through all of the holidays one after the other was a really nice way of 
seeing real people doing real things instead of the entire story being racing from one clue to another and, and one dead body to the next. Yeah, right. I, one thing I also noticed with the time setting as well is it's set in winter. Mm-hmm. So you've got that really bleak, snowy environment, which I, I love seeing in horror. Is that something that you've grown up with? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's snowing outside right now. Right. Uh, I don't know if we're capturing <laughs> video or if it's worth me pointing the camera there. Uh, but I live in the mountains and it is December, so it's snowy and bleak. Um, visibility is like 100 yards because wow, uh, wow. everything is just socked in and dark and gloomy. And so, yeah, like you, I think that that's a fun place to set horror stories yeah (laughs) um so i do have to say while we were filming this movie i got to be on set for about a week and a half and i was writing book five of the john cleaver series at the time and you know it was in this you know midwestern northern tiny town it was about 30 degrees below zero at night uh, and and we had to often go outside and film at night in those conditions and uh the director, Billy, uh, he at one point said, Dan, can you please set your next book in Fiji? <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, book five of the John Cleaver series is set in uh, Texas in the summertime, oh, specifically wow. because at some future point, should we be so lucky as to have that adapted into film, uh, <laughs> we won't have to suffer in the snow. Mm. So um, the movie... Obviously, uh, adaptation of your book. There are a few differences, I believe. Mm-hmm. I haven't read the book, unfortunately. Conrad, you have. Yeah. How did you find the differences and, and sort of the adaptation in general? I was fortunate in that I became very good friends with Billy. Mm. Uh, Billy is wonderful. I did not have any actual creative control over the movie. And authors typically don't, unless you're George Martin or something. Uh-huh. And so while I did not have the ability to veto a script, he was very kind and sent me many drafts of the script as they worked on it. Oh, wow. And so I got to read several things and I got to give feedback. And when we got to what was essentially the final shooting script, it had a very different ending from the book. Ah. And what was really interesting to me is that the ending was basically the first draft ending that I wrote for the book Wow! and determined that it, it didn't work. And so I wrote this huge letter to Billy and I'm like, I can see what you're going for. <laughs> I tried this myself. It's not going to work. And he wrote back and he said, you're not a film guy. Trust me, it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and he was right. Uh, once I saw the final product, the ending in the book would not have worked on film. And the ending in the movie would not have worked in the book. And that's one of those things that is really kind of delightful to discover in an adaptation, that something has been changed with purpose and with very clever intention because going from one medium to another requires those kinds of changes. Mm. Billy was right. Uh, That's a better ending. Some of the things that he did, uh, for example, in the middle of the movie, there's a scene in the book with a barber the monster kills the barber and it's tense and it's thrilling it's a good chapter and in the movie they added a whole community dance sequence to it and so it's still the barber Ah. but there's this whole extra scene where they go and they have a party and all these old people are like square dancing or whatever they're doing and that's all new and it's so good 
uh, I told Billy I wish that I had thought of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it adds a different dimension, doesn't it? Because Bill Crowley is watching the barber dance with his wife, Kay, which he can't do because his leg is giving out and he's jealous. Yeah. So he kills the barber and takes his leg. And in the very next scene, you see him dancing with his wife and he's happy. So it stretches the tone of the movie somewhat, mm-hmm. but I think it works. It adds so much humanity to the killer, uh, to the monster, and it adds uh, just a wonderful extra depth to that particular death. Mm. Yeah, I feel lucky. You know, most authors never get any kind of an adaptation of their work at all. Mm, right. Uh, my very first book got one. I was involved with it, and it was really good. Like, those three <laughs> yeah. things, usually you're lucky to get even one of them. I got all three, and... You know, it's all downhill from here. (laughs) (laughs) So one one thing with books is when when you're reading books about monsters, you're you're sort of imagining how it would look. Like, how did you find the adaptation of the monster in in the movie? Was it exactly how you imagined it? No. Ah. Uh, (laughs) and, And that in part is because uh, I hadn't really imagined the monster in any explicit detail. And so as we started going through it, I was working with Billy and with Toby Froud, who was our effects designer. And they they got so frustrated with me because they would ask the same question you just asked. Oh, like, yeah. What does this monster look like? What should our adaptation look like? And I'd say, I don't know. It's slimy. <laughs> and so the eventual look of it, we owe entirely to Toby and not to me. Ah, wow. And he was able to come up with this really wonderful combination of something that is strange and alien and inhuman while still having very relatable details to it. I remember when we looked at this clay maquette that he had done, and of all the stupid details to notice, he had this very flat, saggy backside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and something about that was just like, yeah, you know, this monster is thousands of years old. He is old and he is tired. Of course, he has an old man bum. Like, that just made sense. Right. And yeah, yeah. again, humanized this inhuman creature in a way that, for me, worked really well. The number one criticism that I hear from other people is that the final scene where you see the monster, the only time you see it in full, that it kind of came out of nowhere and they weren't expecting it and they didn't know how to process it. And I'm sad that people had that experience because uh, I really enjoyed the monster design. Yeah. But I got to see a lot more of the monster than most people did. Uh, yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask some maybe stupid questions <laughs> just to understand the, the monster. So th- was the monster inhabiting the body of Mr. Crowley, the, the sort of human body or like, like sort of like a demon possessing a body or was, did he have like a sort of outer shell, like human outer shell that he sort of created to blend into society because his hands obviously changed to the monster hands, but then they changed back. Mm-hmm. And also he is very old. And even when he's replacing organs and, and limbs, he doesn't get any younger. Yeah. Sort of thing. So what, what's the sort of explanation of, of how the monster exists? Well, well, now we're getting into the nitty gritty details of it. <laughs> so in my head, my personal explanation of how the monster works is that he himself, what is intrinsic to him, 
is a nasty black sludge uh-huh. uh, like you would get in an old engine or an old barbecue grill. This just kind of carbonized, nasty gunk. And he is able to, I guess you could say, inhabit a body. But more than that, that gunk goes into a body. Uh-huh. And he is that person. And then as the body parts start to fail, he has to replace them. So it is, it's not so much that he's riding around in a body. It's that he can become that person. Right. The reason he never got younger when he was taking younger people's body parts is he loved his wife. Uh-huh. That's why he stole just a little body part at a time. Because if he stole a leg or a lung, there was enough of himself to overpower that transformation. And, and it would still look like an old man leg or function like an old man lung. Mm. And if he ever took an entire body, then he would have lost that identity and claimed another one and, and moved on. And his wife wouldn't know who he was. And so that's kind of the dilemma that he was trapped in. Right. And the reason that he was trying so hard to not kill people, frankly, uh, he was willing to do anything to stay with Kay, but he was also trying to be the kind of person that Kay wanted him to be. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what I really liked about the story is the fact that the villain or the bad guy, he's not just bad. He's an old guy. You know, he's got a, mm-hmm. a lovely wife that he's very deeply in love with. And so you, you're quite sympathetic of his character and, and you sort of sympathize with his struggles, his daily struggles every day of just, you know, going to the toilet or having a bath or exercising. It's not someone you want to hate, but then he kills all of these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and thank you very much. I'm so glad that you loved that. That idea right there was the origin of the book for me. Mm. I was thinking about sociopathy, uh, sociopathy. I've been talking about this book for 15 years. I still don't know how it's pronounced. But (laughs) that idea, like I said earlier, that sociopathy is kind of defined in part by an inability to connect with other people. Mm. And how amazing would it be if there was an actual inhuman monster who could connect with other people? who could have real friendships and who could fall in love. And that when John looked at that monster who had all of these incredible relationships and things that John himself didn't have, and yet knew that tension of knowing, well, which one of us is is really the monster mm. and, and which one of us actually fits into this community and which one doesn't. That was the entire book for me. That's why I wrote it. Mm. When we were shopping it around originally, trying to sell the manuscript, I had one publisher who said, I love this and I'll buy it if you take out the supernatural stuff. Uh, Just make it a crime novel. Uh, no. And that would have lost that aspect of the human and the inhuman, which was so core to the story for me. Mm. And so we said no to that one. And, and thankfully, uh, Tor picked up the book instead. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's so interesting in the story is the fact that you've got a character that thinks he's gonna become a serial killer. And he's got all these characteristics of, of being a sociopath with the, the dark triad mm-hmm. characteristics. And then you have an actual serial killer that's trying not to be a serial killer and doesn't show those characteristics and is as human as can be. And the the sort of juxtaposition of those two is really interesting to see. Well, thank you. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) The central character of the sociopath who's on the verge of being a serial killer. Now, this is something that 
I know that I love in both written fiction and in movies. So I'm, I'm particularly a fan of Patricia Highsmith's Tom Ripley character. Mm-hmm. How did you go about walking the fine line with John to make him so that even though he has no empathy for anybody else, the audience has empathy for him and wants to see him get through this. Yeah, Mm. you've identified the core problem that had to be solved before I could write this. And I did three things, basically. Number one, uh, I made him funny. Mm. John is funny. He cracks jokes. It's very dark humor, but he is funny. Mm. And we tend to like people who are funny. If I had made him more of a cipher like Thomas Ripley, if I had gone in more of an unlikable direction, I think it would have been hard for people to care about his story as much, even if the story was relatively the same thing. The other thing I did is I, I made him trying to be good, right? Mm. He wants to do what's right. And we can identify with that because really when you come right down to it, All of us have made moral compromises in our lives. All of us have kind of spent most of our lives fighting against our baser instincts or our natural tendencies. Even if it's something as simple as, I want to lay in bed all day eating cookies, but (laughs) I know that I should get up and go to work. Or all the way to something much darker, like, I really hate this person who bullies me at school. I want to kill them but I'm not going to. Mm. I know that I dreamed about it a few times, but I'm not going to do it. And so that struggle of trying to do the right thing is something we can all relate to, and it is inherently laudatory. So it's not only relatable, but we feel for him. We're like, yeah, do it. You go, John. Try to do the right thing. And then last of all, just the mere fact that everything that can possibly go wrong in John's life goes wrong. Mm. We are inherently social creatures. We try to help each other. We want to see the rest of the herd succeed. And so having John kind of always be sad and, you know, even if he finds a nice shiny apple, there's going to be a worm in it. Mm. Every book ends on a down note because even his victories kind of feel like defeats. And that wakes up our sympathy and it helps us kind of root for him. And you put all of these ingredients together where he is trying to do the right thing against his own nature, and he's trying so hard. And then you get to things like the scene at the end where he's beating an old woman unconscious with a clock radio, and you're rooting for him to succeed. And you have that moment of, what am I doing? Am I a monster too? Mm. And that is my favorite thing. If I can get a reader to cheer for John doing something horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I read somewhere that you have a cameo. I'm not sure whether that's true. Are you you in the movie? (laughs) I do have a cameo. I'm on camera for about one second. So the first cameo that we planned, we weren't able to do. Uh, The scene where John confronts his mother on a date at the Chinese restaurant. Ah, yes. Billy and I thought it would be hilarious if as the camera pans across, I would be sitting there in one of the booths reading I Am Not a Serial Killer <laughs> as a weird little <laughs> Easter egg for the audience. Oh, wow. Because of uh, Laura Fraser's schedule, when she could come in and film, I had to leave before she arrived. So not only did I never get to meet her, unfortunately, uh-huh. uh, but we were I wasn't present when that scene was filmed. Right, right. So we decided to switch the cameo. And at the very end, 
when they're carrying the therapist's body, the cops are carrying the therapist's body out of the woods ah, yes. on a stretcher. I am one of those cops. Oh, and wow. okay. they gave me the police uniform and then the costumer basically handed me a box full of pins and medals and stuff and said, here, take whatever you want. <laughs> so I found a name tag that said Brian Wilson and I pinned it on and I've decided that canonically as the creator of the work, I am playing former Beach Boy Brian Wilson, who has become a cop. <laughs> but we filmed that on the edge of this little town yeah. in like a ditch. Right. <laughs> it was snowy and nasty, and there was a good four or five inches of slush and ice in the ditch. Yeah. Also, I think every person who lives in the town had taken their dog out there <laughs> to do their business in that ditch. Oh, no. And so... <laughs> We had the on-site effects guy, uh, who's also named Toby. He was on the stretcher. He was playing the role of the dead therapist. Because uh, uh, we didn't have the actual therapist on, on set at the time. And so he was there, and then there were four of us who would lift him up and walk like 60 feet down this ditch full of dog poop and ice <laughs> and sluck. Oh my God. And they fill up and they say, okay, yeah. reset. And we did that back and forth like seven times. Wow. And that is my glamorous experience with Hollywood. Oh, wow. <laughs> so as far as you are aware, can we hope for an adaptation of the second book or a further development of John Wayne Cleaver, perhaps with the further adventures of Brian Wilson in there as well? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot promise that Brian Wilson, the police officer, um, <laughs> I will say that there are things happening that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Oh. So you, you can take that as good news. There's been at least two other attempts to uh, bring it back. Various producers or, or directors find it and get very excited about it. Most recently, somebody stumbled across the book and loved it. And something is happening, but I am not at liberty to say how far along it is, wow. whether it will actually happen at all. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> For an author, that's very good news. That sounds vague. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. it means that somebody is interested and uh, we're excited. We hope it goes somewhere. Ooh, sounds good. Yeah, something to look forward to. But one thing I'm looking forward to is reading the other five novels. And there's a novella as well, I believe. Yes, there is. So I am going to be tucking into those because I'm very excited to see what happens to John next. Mm. Well, I warn you that book two is the one that made my mother-in-law call my wife and ask if she felt safe at home. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> such wonderful things to look forward to. Um, and book three is the one where if somebody on social media tells me they hate me, I know which page of book three they just read. Oh, right. <laughs> There's a lot of ups and downs still to come, but I hope you love it. I really love the series. And if it made any sense at all, I would try to write some more books. But I like how six ended so much that I am trying to be good and just mm. leave things as they are. Ah. It's always good to know when a story has reached its end. I think that's that's mm -hmm. something that uh, quite a few movie producers could learn. <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Well, thanks, Dan, so much for being with us for our Christmas special mm. and uh, sharing your thoughts on the movie <laughs> and your your fascinating trivia behind the the making of the movie too. Uh, where can people follow you, and uh, what can they be looking out for next? Uh, well, I am grumpy enough and old enough that I'm essentially 
off of social media. Uh, there is an Instagram account that my wife maintains. That's it. The best way to follow me and see what I'm doing and see what I'm working on and which conventions I'm going to be at and things like that is to get on my newsletter, go to my website, which is thedanwells.com. Uh, I, I work with Brandon Sanderson, uh, who's a good friend of mine uh, from college, and he's a big fantasy writer. Most of what I'm working on right now is collaborations with him. And so those you should be able to see coming out over the next couple of years as we gear up and get those ready. Mm. The other thing that I want to uh, publicize, and, and this might not be as readily affordable for people on the other side of the world from me, uh, but I also, like you said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a professional dungeon master and I run gaming retreats. Ooh. So I've got three gaming retreats, which is, you know, you come and I rent a house and I fill it with food and we play games all week. Wow. Uh, and I have three of those next summer in 2024. One of them is already sold out, but I, I have two left. And so those are also on my website, thedanwells.com. So cool. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a great way to spend a summer. <laughs> yes. I agree. <laughs> and of course, you've also got your podcast. Yes. Um, and there is Writing Excuses, which is uh, the writing podcast that I do with Mary Robinette Kowal, Howard Taylor, Dong Won Song, and Aaron Roberts. All just absolutely wonderful, brilliant people um, and much smarter than I am. And I am honored to be able to <laughs> listen to them say smart things and occasionally ask my opinion. Ah. Uh, I do a podcast with Brandon Sanderson as well called Intentionally Blank. Uh, that is just the two of us trying to make each other laugh. It has no uh, <laughs> redeemable value whatsoever, uh, but we have a lot of fun. That's so great. Well, thanks so much, Dan. It's been so generous of you to spend your time with us. Yes. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. This was a lot of fun. Happy holidays. Yes. See you later. And we're back to talk about I Am Not a Serial Killer. It was great fun talking to the author of the book on which this movie is based. Dan, as you mentioned, I think, at the beginning of the show, you hadn't seen this one before. Yeah, so uh, I still don't know how you managed to get these guests on our podcast. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, yes, I had not seen this one before. This was a recommendation from you. I think you even got it for me mm. for one of Christmases or birthdays or something. Uh, yeah, like, like a five years ago. A couple of years ago. So it's just been waiting patiently on my shelf to be finally watched and uh, reviewed on the podcast. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. It's not what I expected mm. at all, especially the genre switch yeah. the, the way through, because it is very much set up as a serial killer thriller type movie, mm. like Zodiac and Sons of the Lambs, except you're following like a teenager sort of trying to solve the mystery behind the killings. And also with the added level of the teenager thinking he would also become a serial killer, it's quite different. Yeah. It's not something I've ever really seen before. And it, it being quite meta in the fact that it was kind of self-analytical with him picking out the characteristics, the dark triad of the sort of three characteristics of Am I a sociopath? Mm. I tick these boxes. Maybe I am, or maybe <laughs> I'm not. 
Yes, I love that when he finds out that his therapist has diagnosed him with sociopathy or sociopathy, even Dan Wells wasn't sure how it was pronounced. Uh, he just says, wow, that's kind of cool. Yes. He's a fascinating character. I've always loved these types of anti-heroes, the sort of Tom Ripley, Dexter type of characters where they're traditionally not the most upstanding protagonists that you might look mm. for, but I like mm. the ones that have got a dark twist to them. And John Wayne Cleaver is desperately keen not to become a serial killer if he can possibly avoid it. Yes. But in pursuing the serial killer that comes to his hometown, finds himself being unable to control some of his dark impulses, like stalking people. Mm. And he starts to sort of unleash the monster inside himself in order to be able to track the monster in the town. So it's a great tension for the character and fascinating to watch and then as you say you get the genre switch a third of the way in when you're following christopher lloyd's character bill crowley the kindly elderly next door neighbor thinking oh no he's going to become the victim because he's gone fishing with this drifter that you keep seeing around town that looks suspicious mm. and then christopher lloyd not only kills him he does so using supernatural means yes. his hand just turns into this monster talent thing and you suddenly realize oh shit yeah <laughs> this is yet another genre that i wasn't expecting so mm. i was fully on board for that i know a lot of people get bucked out of the movie at that point but i was fully on board yeah and that that's why i'm very open to cinema i will accept any genre mm. like uh, watching from dust till dawn that movie is very polarizing because it does really switch genres halfway through yeah and yeah why i also don't like watching trailers because i don't want to have any spoilers i don't want to twist support for me what i do also like about this movie is it does have a very sort of indie look to it mm. an indie sort of approach to storytelling like there is a lot of focus on the, on the family dynamic and even the sort of neighborly dynamic between all the neighbors and this tiny little town in winter as well so everyone's very isolated but very connected as a community mm. which is really interesting to see as well as obviously a serial killer in this town and people being murdered. But you do have this very indie look to it and how it's filmed and how it's framed. Was it filmed on film? Like it has that grainy texture. Yes, it was filmed on 16 millimeter. Right. So it really has a 70s cinema verite or or even tv movie look to it like the opening titles the deep saturated red opening titles yeah that look as though they've been optically composited because they're not terribly stable and when the title comes up it's got the copyright underneath in small letters so it mm. looks kind of like it's a 70s tv movie almost yeah there is kind of nods to older cinema styles mm. i mean even the genre like some of the scenes did remind me of john carpenter movies and yeah that sort of graininess made it much more i don't know relatable like it did kind of fit the hot small town aspect of the movie as well yeah it reminded me a lot of martin which we looked uh, yes. at earlier on in yes. the year it felt very much like either a romero or a carpenter independent horror movie very tense but still yeah a lot of focus on the family, a lot of focus on the dynamics between John and his mother, which is genuinely quite affecting. 
Mm. You know, when he turns on his mother with a knife at one point because the tension is mounting, you see how hurt she is and all the work that she's doing to try to keep him connected, try to keep him a productive safe member of society Mm. whilst knowing how dangerous he could be fantastic work by laura fraser ah yes i also love his sister who Ah, floats in and out and puts up with as much (laughs) as she can yeah she's played by anna sundberg Mm. lauren bacall cleaver they're all named after film stars ah yes 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 (laughs) Uh, one thing i also liked about this movie is even the minor characters felt complex Mm. there weren't two-dimensional characters at all like every character had their own quirk like even the therapist that john sees um as a dr neblin his obsession with birds for some reason like he's just like constantly trying to look at birds and bird watch that's really interesting yeah and you've got his friend max who's just not very bright But in a very endearing way. Like, he he writes a school paper on Einstein, but he manages to spell his name wrong every every time. time (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's hilarious. Yeah, and I feel sad for Max when John goes to his house when he's trying to escape Bill Crowley, who's searching for him on the streets in the car. And he goes to his friend's house and blurts out that, you know, he's losing control and he needs to get back to all of his rules. And one of his rules is spending time with Max because that makes him normal. Mm. And you can see how hurt Max is that their friendship is just a performative chore that John does in order to stay rooted in society. And he throws him out of the house. And then, of course, his father dies. So, yeah, it's amazing how much you feel for these characters when the central character is an emotional black hole. Yeah, and, and that's what's conflicting with who you sympathise with in the movie as well, because you do get to know these minor characters that end up getting murdered, mm. so you feel sad. But you also feel sad for Miss Crowley as well, because he's old, He's you know, he can barely function, he needs John to help him go to the bathroom. It's quite interesting to watch all these characters interact and feeling sorry for everyone like everyone is struggling in this town but one thing that dan wells did point out is there is a lot of humor in this movie and that is what you find endearing with john especially Mm. and the humor is amazing yeah uh it's very dry it's very dark yes <laughs> and i loved it yeah i think it's just from the opening shot where the ambulance driver is loading the victim into the back of the ambulance and all of the victim's guts like flop out over the street yeah yeah and then as they're passing john they say to him you know what do you think john and john just looks back at the cops and say he's dead for sure <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah Yep. <laughs> yes, yes. And I thought, okay, I get the tone of this. I think in an interview, the director Billy O'Brien and Max Records refer to Fargo ah, as kind of a reference point yeah. in terms of the humour. And uh, I hadn't thought of that watching it, but looking back on it with that in mind, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, similar setting as well, the snow mm. and the, the winter sort of environment. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of other snowy horror movies that this kind of reminded me of. Like the thing kind of came to mind. Mm. Black Coat's Daughter or February. Oh, yeah. There are two names for that movie. Yeah, yeah. Similar sort of setting, different movie, kind of similar premise, actually. But going back to the humor, I did really, really enjoy the humor because it, it is a very kind of bleak 
and dread drenched movie but all this kind of quippy dark dry humor every now and again is actually really refreshing but not in a slapstick way it's never going for silly no it's not sending up the genre or undermining it it's just adding a real human yes sense of humanity in there that i really like and i also appreciate how detailed it is Mm. there are a lot of lovely little touches in there that you can appreciate when you watch it a few times john tearing up the chicken in his lunchbox which is kind of disturbing john gets that christmas gift from his father the ipod Mm. that uh, has nothing on it so his estranged father sends him that for christmas and it's a real letdown the note that he sends him says hey tiger and this comes after the scene where Crowley has quoted the famous William Blake poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright, Ah, talking about the tiger being a creature of horror and darkness. Mm. And for John's father to refer to him playfully as a tiger, I just thought, I know that that's deliberate. Mm. There are lots of lovely little details in there. It's a very rich movie, I think. Yeah, there are sort of hints at sociopathy I guess like you mentioned the chicken and there's a scene after Thanksgiving and it's just like the shot of the turkey carcass on the table and when they play the video game it's just this really horrific like looking violent video game Mm. you know there's all these kind of like well there's nods to like this guy is probably a sociopath but is he it's subtle but it's very well put together yeah another scene that is deeply humorous for me is the end scene like the very end scene when the therapist is on the table and they're (laughs) about to embalm him Mm. and they switch on the uh, embalming machine and the needle is in time to the like sort of closing music yes it's just like wow yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's beautiful yeah the end credits are over in balming fluid pink that's right yes yes (laughs) i love it (laughs) now it's time for random trivia all right conrad what fascinating piece of trivia have you found by stalking your neighbor today A lot of people probably know this already, but the monster in the movie was designed by Toby Froud, who is an English-American artist, special effects designer, puppeteer. And he, of course, is the son of Brian Froud, the great artist who designed everything that's in Jim Henson's film The Labyrinth, Ah. in which Toby played the baby that was kidnapped by David Bowie. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, so Toby is the baby in the labyrinth and he designed the Christopher Lloyd monster. (laughs) Wow. That is great trivia. (laughs) Literally watch that guy grow up, which makes me feel very old. (laughs) And it's our trivia. It is. One thing that I think helps also with the tone and keeps the sort of mystery 
and the horror in there, but also slightly quirky and indie flavoured, is the score. Oh, yes. By Adrian Johnston, who I mostly know from doing British costume dramas. Ah. I first came across him doing the score for a Dickensian adaptation for the BBC called Our Mutual Friend. And he's done the recent version of Brideshead Revisited. Ah, I say right. recent, it was like 10, 15 years ago. Okay. So I'm used to him doing austere stringy BBC costume drama music mm. to hear him do something that has sinewy bassoon sort of lines sort of flipping between three yeah. notes in a very disturbing way and then organ music a lot of organ yeah, yeah. so the two sort of cues I, I picked out were the, yeah the organ stuff that kind of reminded me of the Candyman oh, sort of yeah. that type of it's not Philip Glass in, in that sort of sense, but it does have that sort of almost gothic sound to it. Mm. There is also uh, the cue that you mentioned with the woodwind. Like it, it almost sounds like a, a siren or an alarm, like a... Yeah. It's just like alternating between like two or three notes or something. But yeah, it's creepy. It's really creepy. On top of all of that, there's also... Uh, what I can only describe as elephant trumpets. <laughs> Every time Crowley seems to appear in, in sort of more sort of terrifying scenes, you've got this, this sort of elephant sound through it. Ah. I don't know. I mean, it is terrifying. It works. It does work. Yeah, it does. Now, I was just really surprised because this is not a form that I'm used to hearing Adrian Johnston working in. But, I mean, he's scored things like Strangers Pray at Night uh-huh. recently. So maybe I'm just um, not keeping up with just how talented and versatile he is. Mm. I really liked how the score was cued as well. Like, there's not too much music. No. It's in all the right places. And it's loud and jarring in places where it needs to be. Mm. And then it's very subtle and quiet and or not at all in other scenes. Yeah. Because I, I just don't like overscored <laughs> movies and this is not overscored. It's very precise. And it's also great in terms of having songs on the soundtrack as well, yes. like the one that, at the end that you mentioned. And also the use of instruments is sort of rooted in the story itself because you do have a montage scene where you see John sort of wandering around the town and investigating intercut with him in the chapel playing the organ yes. himself. Mm. And that is actually credited on IMDb as Chapel Madness written and performed by Max Records. So <laughs> yeah. He was involved in the movie a lot. I mean, it took them six years to get this movie off the ground. Mm. And they recorded a test of him when he was five, six years younger, right after Where the Wild Things Are. Clearly too young to play this role. And it took them so long to get the money. But as it turned out, that was better because he was better able to play the role. He was more age appropriate and also not subject to as many restrictions in terms of working with child actors. Mm. So that was all for the better. But you see in the making of that, at one point he's like puppeteering the monster Ah. at the end of the movie. And he's obviously composing his own cue on the organ in the movie. (laughs) So it feels like it was something that he was really into. And uh, I think he does a fantastic job playing the central character. I'd love to see him do it again. Mm, Yeah, I mean, the only other movie I have seen Max Records in is The Sitter, 
which is a really dumb Jonah Hill comedy. Oh. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's one of those very throwaway comedy movies. Right. But yeah, and, and, and Where the Wild Things Are. So I think his performance in this is incredible. Mm. It's very nuanced. It's very subtle. It's just so well-delivered, as well as Christopher Lloyd. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that many movies with Christopher Lloyd. And all the movies I have seen him in, apart from, obviously, Back to the Future, he's tiny roles. Mm. So it was really good to see him do something really meaty and uh, nuanced and sort of dynamic like this. Yeah, and I think that's why he wanted to do it. And it's darker because, you know, he usually gets typecast as Doc Brown at this point. Yeah. So to do this character who has a dark romantic heart and is quite sympathetic, but is also a monster. And when he's scary, he is scary. Yes. So yes. it's a, a thrill to watch. Yeah, and yeah, And the scene yeah. where the two of them come together in the church, which is not in the book, as I mentioned to Dan Wells, it's a great scene mm. between the two of them. Mm. You'd feel robbed if you didn't have the scene where they face, well, they don't face each other, but they actually confront each other knowing who the other one is, mm. which never quite happens in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I have also realised that we have seen Christopher Lloyd on the podcast before in Buckaroo Banzai across yes. the eighth dimension. So, yes. yeah, I'm normally used to him playing wacky scientists or, you know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, that sort of thing, like just the weird, wacky villain. Mm. Uh, whereas this was much different it was yeah one of our patrons mentioned that actually <laughs> ah right <laughs> i guess we should talk about the monster so yeah. christopher lloyd mr crowley he is secretly this oozy tarry monster we did talk about it with dan wells and how it's not how he envisioned but it is very good looking and this movie does really well in in sort of slowly introducing monster you like you don't really see it when mr crowley first kills the drifter it's from afar and you can kind of see the hand but you can't really make it out and even in the scene where he kills the two cops in the barbershop they've shot it in a way that things are kind of in the way or there's the mirror and then then there's only that one scene where he retracts his claws from the cop's throat or whatever mm. and then you've got the final reveal yes at the end which was all practical, right? Yeah. It was all puppets and miniatures. Rod puppetry on set or in front of a green screen in order to remove the puppetry apparatus. Yeah. Which I thought worked really well. And I love the design of it as well. And I love that it was used sparingly. Mm. But as Dan Wells mentioned, it threw a lot of people out of the movie. Yeah, I kind of have to agree with uh. Uh, those people that have said that. Um, that the final reveal of the full form fully on camera in frame of the monster i don't know something about the lighting and the compositing it just didn't quite look right oh um, okay yeah so for me that one shot didn't quite work everything before and sort of after brilliant it looked amazing yeah. creepy disgusting this kind of black oozy liquid everywhere that sort of hand splat when he first emerges from christopher lloyd's fleshy body um it's <laughs> oh, really really good so uh, yeah I, for the most part i really enjoyed the creature design 
I was fully on board with it. It didn't bother me at all. I appreciated the ambition of what they were trying to do on a small budget. And I sort of forgave that one shot's limitations Mm. just because I was admiring the creature design. So I was fully on board and thought, wow, you're going to just show the whole thing right now. Great. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) One thing I deeply appreciate is no CGI. No. That would have completely ruined it. So big praise for going completely practical. Definitely. Mm. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. Hello, it's that special time of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite sociopathic dark triad parts of the film in a number of genre switching categories. Best quote. My favourite quote comes from John. He says it to Brooke. I don't think he means it as a joke. I think he means it completely straight, but it's hilarious. And it's when they're at the Halloween party and she's complimenting him on his outfit. And he says, I was thinking of dressing up as my mother, but I was worried what my therapist would say. (laughs) 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 And I'm sure he's just saying it genuinely, completely straight. Yeah. um, it's yeah, hilarious. It is, it is, it is. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, my favourite line is also from uh, the Halloween party and from John. Um, mm-hmm. He's been confronted by the bully. Uh, I think his name's Rob. Uh, and John says, I've been clinically diagnosed with sociopathy, Rob. And then he goes on to describe Rob. And he says, you're as important to me as a cardboard box. The thing about cardboard boxes, you know, they're totally boring on the outside. But sometimes if you cut them open, there'll be something interesting inside. <laughs> so while you're saying all these boring things to me, I'm thinking about what it'll be like to cut you open. <laughs> uh, and then I love it at the end when John just says, Rob Anders of 232 Carnation Street, you are a really great guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really creepy. What I love about that is that he's established before that one of his rules is whenever he gets the urge to hurt somebody, mm, he mm. compliments yeah, them and yeah. smiles. So when he does that at the end, after he's mentioned his home address, <laughs> <laughs> it's really fucking creepy. It's so good. <laughs> Best hair or costume? Hair and costume, I have to point out the panda ski mask that uh, John yeah. gets as one of his Christmas presents. Uh because it's it's kind of creepy, uh, but at the same time adorable. Um, but he wears it when he goes to I think Max's house. Um, but he also ha- mm. it's his kind of disguise um, when Mr. Crowley almost catches him as well. But yeah, it's kind of it's got a look. I like it. Yeah, I, it's a fabulous piece of costuming, and kind of creepy but cute and harmless, and actually a vegetarian. Is, ah yes, <laughs> it's it's a great um, visual metaphor for the character. I think not in the book ah. uh, that one. So that is purely the costume designer or the director or Max Records himself mm. that came up with that. It's a really good visual. Yes, yes, yes. Most twenty tens moment. So I thought the most twenty tens thing about this movie was the uh, sudden fascination with sixteen millimeter film stock. And the 70s TV movie vibe. Oh, I just think there was 
A sudden newfound enthusiasm for analogue audiovisual media like vinyl in the 2010s that persists until now, actually. So I'm thinking of things like Ty West's House of the Devil, which was actually 2009, might have been a trailblazer. Mm. Moonrise Kingdom from Wes Anderson in yes, 2012. Yes. And Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan in 2010, also shot on 16mm. So I that to me feels uh, very 2010s. Yeah. So 2010s for me, I would say sort of this big popularity in true crime and especially serial killers because uh, I looked up a a whole bunch of popular podcasts like um, My Favourite Murder and Red Handed, uh, two sort of true crime podcasts, both came out in the 2010s. Right. And I think a lot of true crime podcasts came out in the 2010s as well. And especially with hosts that you wouldn't expect to be into that as well. So both of those podcasts I mentioned, the hosts are just 20, 30 something woman. So not, you know, some, you know, stuffy man or anything like these are normal people, you know, relatively, (laughs) um, just being really, really obsessed with true crime and, and serial killers. Yeah. Favorite scene. So we've already talked about my favorite scene, which is John confronting and scaring Rob Anders. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. In the Halloween party scene. Um, mm. My favorite scene, I did really like the reveal of the monster of Bill Crowley in his uh, true form. Mm. And there's this moody music underscoring these scenes. Uh, and then you, you see the drifter and Bill Crowley and, and they're, they're going to go fishing uh, and they've got mm. the chainsaw. So there's this, all this build up like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Uh, and then, yeah, the completely unexpected happens. Bill Crowley's hand turns into some monster hand, stabs the guy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just such a good build up to that reveal and also unexpected not expecting that at all no most cliche moment okay biggest cliche my next door neighbor's a killer (laughs) yeah yeah i did think of disturbia and summer of Mm. uh, 84 yes two ones that came to mind of course it starts with hitchcock with rear window in 1954 but then, you know, I'm just thinking of 80s classics like Fright Night mm. and The Burbs mm-hmm. and Apt Pupil, Arlington Road, What Lies Beneath, The Girl on the Train more recently. Uh, yeah, Summer of 84 and The Woman in the Window 2021. Mm. So, yeah, My Next Door Neighbours a Killer is a very popular trope. and uh, But I love it. I do love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Special effect. I mean, the, the standout has to be the, the big final reveal of the monster. Um, so to describe the, the scene, you've got Crowley, who has um, sort of incapacitated the mum, and he's threatening to kill her. John manages to knock out Crowley. They strap him to the table. They in, insert the embalming tubes into him and suck out his black ooze. <laughs> and then pump in the embalming fluid and then yes he uh sort of melts away and then final form just yeah apart, i mean apart from that one shot everything else incredible incredible yeah i would agree 
I think my absolute favourite in that scene is the melting black husk of what's left of Bill Crowley ah, on the table. Yes. I love yeah. the monster, I love the Brian Froud design, but the husk sort of slowly melting away on the table into nothingness is, yeah, really cool. Because again, it's all practical. Yeah. Favourite sound effect. My favourite sound effect was, um, or use of sound design, was as John watches his mum pulling the giblets out of the turkey. Is it Christmas? Or is it... I think it might be Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. yeah. And on the soundtrack, you hear Crowley's laboured breathing from the scene where he reached into the body of the drifter and pulled out his lungs. So what I love about it is it's not like a noughties movie where you get the stupid, distorted flashback with the terrible colour contrast. You don't visually get a reminder Mm. to tell you that that's what John is thinking about as she's pulling bits out of this turkey carcass. You just hear the breathing on the soundtrack just so that you can make that connection. You can see that that's what it's reminding him of. And it's also helping him understand maybe what the monster is doing. That he's actually pulling out pieces that he needs or something Mm. so yeah i love that i thought yay subtlety you know you're not hitting the audience over the head with something you're just just putting something on the sound subtly Mm, mm, to mm. make that connection most funniest moment uh there are just so many funny moments in this movie it's, it's very hard to pick pick one i mean an easy one would be the halloween scene um but as as a second choice i did quite like the scene so after john has witnessed crowley kill a man uh, it's thanksgiving and he sent next door to get vanilla and he <laughs> arrives next door and they're playing operation which is hilarious yes. after he's just seen crowley <laughs> rip out the lungs from the drift <laughs> um, uh, but the scene keeps going and and brooke comes up to him and and she asks him you know, what What does he want? And he, he just says, vanilla. And then she just inquires, vanilla? Like ice cream? And then he just responds, <laughs> you know, I'm not really sure. <laughs> it's just such a <laughs> ridiculous sort of exchange between the two after such a horrific scene and also with the operation game as well it's just oh it's brilliant (laughs) yeah it is wonderful i love all the scenes of like uh john practicing a human interaction sort of practicing what he's going to say yeah and it's really good and then he gets into the interaction and he's rubbish (laughs) he goes wrong every time he just cannot get it right like he's practicing saying to Bill Crowley's wife, Hello, Mrs. Crowley, I thought I'd shovel the snow. You know, it snowed heavily last night. I thought I'd shovel yeah, the yeah, driveway. Yeah. And then he just gets to the door and she opens it and he's just like, looks at the shovel and goes, Snow. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on, John. You can do better than this. Yeah. This is yeah. terrible. And that's our movie. Oh, yes. Hi, I'm Chris McKay. I'm the director of Renfield, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Hey, hey, it's time for our final verdicts. Should the film I Am Not a Serial Killer be liberated from the depths and go on a killing spree loved by all true crime fans, or should it be pumped with uh, formaldehyde 
melt into a puddle of black tar and be poured back into the oubliette, never <laughs> to be spoken of again. Conrad, <laughs> you have uh, presented me with I Am Not a Serial Killer. What, what's your final verdict for this film? Well, I recommended it because this is one of those gems that I discovered and really loved. The concept really appealed to me, the sociopathic teenager trying to track down a serial killer whilst holding on to his sanity and not losing control over the monster inside him. And then you find out that the next door neighbour is the killer and is a monster. And I, yeah, I just love the genre mashup. I love mm-hmm. the setting. I love the tone. I love the visual design of the movie. I love the score. I love the fact that the movie spends as much time on the characters and the families and even, as you said, the wider community and all these smaller characters and taking time to really explore the relationship between Bill Crowley and his wife in a beautiful and touching way that adds depth to the whole thing. And it's wickedly blackly funny throughout. Mm. I think it's a delight. I think it's a real gem. And if you want something sort of dark and slightly strange and quirky and funny but also genuinely shocking and disturbing in places to watch this festive season i would thoroughly recommend it i think this is a real festive horror gem that not a lot of people might have heard of even though the book series is fabulously successful so yeah i would still vote for it to go Um, a strong proponent of this movie how about you Mm. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. I mean, I think you can tell from what I've said about the film in our discussion. uh, Yeah, it's just got a good balance of everything I want in a movie. Mm. You know, a lot of good characters, complex characters. You've got the sort of juxtaposition between Crowley and and John, um, the sort of analysis of sociopathy and, and serial killing and the setting and just everything the score the even the creature designs very well done i think this movie is is a standout uh, i really really enjoyed it and i did like the sort of indie approach to it as well i think if they'd gone full on hollywood it just would have fallen flat um mm. i'm i would like to read the books i haven't read the yes. book i would like to read that and the uh five subsequent uh, novels as well. So I look forward to getting started. Yeah, I can definitely recommend them. The first one is a real page turner. I read it on the plane and uh, read it in one sitting. So (laughs) yeah, (laughs) couldn't put it down. (laughs) So that's great. That's great. That's great. And uh, yes, I cannot believe we talked to the author of we did. the book. <laughs> I still in disbelief that that happened. Um, <laughs> yes, so so Dan Wells, if you're listening to this, yes, we really liked the movie adaptation of your book. We did, yes, and I loved your book too, and I am going to read <laughs> the rest of them, even though you've warned me that John Wayne Cleaver gets tortured an awful lot uh, through right. the course of the books. So, yeah, I'm still going to go for it. Yeah, that's a real festive treat. It was really fun. We've never done that before. Talk to a writer about the adaptation of their work. Mm. But uh, uh, yeah, so that was really fun. Mm -hmm. But I guess we have to uh, check in with our patrons as well. We do. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Give us that final verdict for one last time this year, please. (laughs) 
Our patrons have decided to throw the film back into the oubliette. Oh, that's a surprise. Yeah, I was not expecting that. So it was sort of split 60-40, but uh, the majority said to throw it back. Eddie Coulter said, I say let it free. Christopher Lloyd is great as Crowley, and this film is a great reminder of how good an actor he is. I also recommend the novel. Rewatching the movie reminded me how good it is, and I'm past you for a revisit. Uh, we also heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Uh-huh. Hello, Serge. And he said, I have nothing against this movie in principle, but I just couldn't suspend my disbelief. There are too many convenient coincidences, and I don't know to what fear this film is speaking. Being a sociopath? Getting killed by a demon? Getting crappy Christmas gifts? <laughs> <laughs> I did notice that uh, John gets around really easily like he seems mm. to be everywhere at the same time um and it, yeah. it seems to follow everyone very easily as well i mean i guess it's a small town so there's that yeah but yeah mm, interesting uh points search yeah definitely and jasmine said i felt like i was watching a supernatural ripoff of apt pupil only with the loathsome foolish and irredeemable characters from the 2019 joker movie which is a film i very much despise christopher lloyd's fine performance is the only thing raising it a notch above turkey status but even that (laughs) resulted in dissatisfaction since it made me want him to gobble up everyone else like plum pudding (laughs) (laughs) wow Oh, well, I mean, that's an interesting take. It is, yeah. No, it's fascinating <laughs> how divisive this this movie has turned out to be. Yes, um, yes. Finally, Chazilla said, I am not a serial killer gave off major Martin and Dexter vibes. Ah. Just like Conrad, I enjoy a good serial killer flick. Yes, I'm the guy that usually roots for the bad guy at movies. <laughs> oh, yes. Great performances by Christopher Lloyd and Max Records. The tension just kept building and building. That cardboard box speech is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Chazilla said, I say let the serial killer in training and jog Big Bootay out of the oubliette <laughs> to creep out the masses at Christmas time. Uh... So I wholeheartedly agree. But yes, there were dissenting voices in there. And overall... It mm. came out as a no, which is interesting. Yeah, Great yeah, to yeah. hear these different points of view on the movie. Yes, yes. But we still uh, outvoted the, the patrons. So we did. we're going to set it free. We are. So go free across the snow. <laughs> I'm coming for you, Bye. All right, listeners. I hope you've enjoyed our episodes for the year. Uh, we'll be taking a bit of a break but we'll be back in january is that right conrad yeah we'll be back in mid-january after taking hopefully a well-earned break yes for yes. the holiday season <laughs> i hope everybody has a really great time over the holiday season and a good rest from work and has mm. fun with the family mm. and yeah. doesn't discover that their neighbor is a serial killer well let's fingers crossed uh, but if, <laughs> if you want to keep up to date with uh we're now 
episode of, of 2024 comes out, you can follow us on all our socials as Movie Oubliette and uh, email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Yes. And if you'd like to support the show, as so many of our great patrons have done to keep us going this year, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you can nominate films for future episodes and get extended portions of the show, including the extended Moobly Awards. And for $5, Mm. you get to vote on the final verdict, get access to our exclusive monthly minisodes, and hear extended versions of our interviews with our special guests, including a double-length version of our chat with I Am Not a Serial Killer author Dan Wells today. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, for $10, you can be an executive producer of the show, like Chazilla, Eddie Coulter, Isaac Sutton, Dr. Doggy, and Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Yes, yes. We're looking forward to next year um, some more of your patrons' choice mm. uh, movies. Uh, so if you become a patron, you can nominate some movies for us to cover. Uh, We also have merchandise on Redbubble and a YouTube channel as well. And uh, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. It does really help us out. It does, yes. And all that merch at Redbubble makes for a fine festive gift. (laughs) It does, yes. Hint, (laughs) hint. Uh, Hint. No movie reveal for next episode, so uh, it's going to be a surprise. Yes. But I can't wait for that. And have a wonderful holiday season, everyone. Yes, and a happy new year. Until then, bye for now. Goodbye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie you'll Christmas, everyone. I was thinking of dressing up as my mother, but I was worried what my therapist would say. <laughs>